Romans 9, 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken in your holy word, that you have shown us those privileges of your ancient people. And more than that, O God, you have shown us that we have a better covenant with better promises. So help us as we consider your promises this day that we might grow in the knowledge of God and rejoice in your salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll consider day, today the promises of God. In review of last week, we looked at the service of God, a privilege God gave to the Israelites, pertained to them, the kinsmen of the Apostle Paul, a specific manner of worship dictated by God himself in the inspired scriptures. We also saw that this blessing, this privilege or advantage, is something that Christians likewise enjoy. God has told us the manner of his worship in the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's table and the singing of God's psalms, his praise and the prayers offered up as the priests of old offered incense. So we offer up spiritual sacrifices made acceptable by Jesus Christ, the fruit of lips giving thanks to God and our prayers as incense. We also saw our duty to delight ourselves in the lawful worship of God, to hold fast the apostolic tradition delivered to us in the scriptures, and to despise and shun all man-made doctrines of worship or of holiness. Now the promises of God, the promises, he said, pertained to his people. This word promise is in Latin where we get misere or mitere, it means to send or to deliver something. In Greek, it comes from the word angelia or an angel, a message. A messenger is an angel and angelia is the message that they deliver. Now this word promise is epangelia, upon a message. A message upon a message or an intensive message. Freiburg in his lexicon defines this word promise or epangelia as follows. Originally an announcement or a declaration. In later Greek, an agreement, a promise or an assurance. Predominantly of God's pronouncements that provide assurance of what he intends to do, a promise or the thing he promises. So God makes promises, but sometimes this word is used for the things promised themselves, like the spirit of promise, in other words, or the land of promises we shall see. So a promise is where God announces, where he declares, 
where he assures us of what he shall do, not on any condition, but unconditionally. This is what I will do. These are the promises that God is referring to here. Now, to get a flavor for the promise of God, please open to John chapter 14. There is a promise that God made to the disciples of Christ through our blessed Savior in John chapter 14. We'll read verses 15 through 18, page 1084 of your pew Bibles. John 14, verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now notice, we're going to see that this is called the spirit of promise that Jesus is talking about. But who is the one that says he will do things in this passage? He gives a conditional statement. If you love me, keep my commandments. There's a command with a condition. If you actually have love for me, how do you show it? Keep my commandments. That's a precept. But notice his promises. And I will pray. There's the first promise. I will pray. He will pray to the Father, and he, that is the Father, shall give. I will pray as the Son of God to the Father in heaven, and the Father in heaven shall send, what? Another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Here's the promise. I will pray, the Father will send, the comforter will come, and he will abide. Then he defines this comforter, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. He shall dwell with you and shall be in you, he says. In fact, the apostles were possessed by the spirit of God in the same way that demons would possess the wicked. They were ruled over and controlled by wicked devils. They were devil-possessed. These would be spirit-possessed, we might say, so that when they spoke, when they preached, when they wrote... What is it? It's the word of God. It's inspired by his spirit. This is the promise. Now please turn to Acts chapter 1, page 1093, just a few pages over, the book of Acts chapter 1, 1093 of your pew Bibles. Let's read together verses 4 and 5. This is our Lord together with the eleven, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith ye, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Notice, what is the promise that will come from the Father? It's the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the pouring out of the Holy Ghost. Now notice, just as a sidelight, some people think that baptism means you go down into the water. Is that true? Did the Holy Ghost sit here and the apostles were dunked down into the Spirit of God? No. 
The Spirit of God was poured out from God in heaven from above. He came down upon them. They didn't go down into him. But be that as it may, the Spirit of God is the promise. God says he'll do things. Christ said he'll do things. The Spirit would come down. He would pray the Father. The Father would send the Spirit, and the Spirit would abide. Did that happen? Yes, Acts 2. But here notice, he's saying he is that Spirit or that promise of the Father. God said, he announced, he made an agreement, he gave an assurance, I will do these things, and he did it. It provides us with the assurance, as Freiburg's lexicon says, of what God intends to do. Did God intend to send his spirit? Yes. Did he actually do it? Yes, he fulfills his promise. Look over to chapter 2 of the book of Acts, if you would, please. Verse 33. Today is one of those sword drills. We're going to go through the New Testament looking at instances of this Greek word promise. Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Note. We have received from the Father, just as God promised the Spirit. And again, the word shed means to pour out. God poured out this forth that you see here and that you hear. Again, God fulfilling his promise. Look down at verse 37. Now when they heard this, that is that they had crucified Christ and were guilty. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now here we have something very interesting. He told them that they murdered God the Son, that they were guilty, that they had sinned. And by hearing that, later we'll find with Stephen, they gnash upon him with their teeth and they stone him with stones. What's the difference? Well, in the one case, when they stone Stephen, their hearts are hardened. In this case, what did God do? Did he harden their hearts by the preaching of the gospel? No. He pricked their hearts. That's like a pokey stick that you poke on your sheep to get them to do what you want. It's, a, it's an animal that's out of control. You have to poke it. You have to get it to go the way that you want. The prick, they called it. A sharp end of the shepherd's rod to injure, if necessary, so that the sheep will submit to you. So this is what happened, not to their hearts like we think of the feelings. That's what we think of as the heart. The Bible conceives of the heart as your thinking, as your understanding, as your conscience. We'll see with David when his heart strikes him after he takes part of Saul's clothing. His heart smote him, it says. His conscience said, wrong. You should not have done that. So their conscience says, guilty. You're sinners. You've sinned against God. And so what is their response? Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
How can we avoid this judgment you're telling us about? We have sinned, we understand it, and what is the answer? Repent. That is, confess and acknowledge your sins, turn from your sins in hope of God's mercy in Christ, and begin to obey anew, hoping not in your obedience, not in your resolution, but in the merits of Jesus Christ crucified for you. Repent. Be baptized, that is, wash away the filth of your sin in the blood of Christ, sacramentally sealed in baptism itself. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the sending away of your sins. That's what remission is. It's where someone comes with a slip, and the slip says... Says here you owe $50 billion to the king and you can't pay a red cent. We're going to throw you into jail until you pay the last farthing of that debt. And you say, but I can't pay it. Have mercy on me. And what does God say? Here's my son. Look to him. He will pay your debt for you. He sends it back. The debt's gone. It's remitted. The remission of sins. Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in his authority, by his crucifixion, by his righteousness, so that your sins may be sent back, the debt canceled. Why? For the promise is unto you, you see. God promised to do specific things. And his promise to everyone that believes is this. You will have remission of sins, both you and your children, and I will pour out my spirit upon you, and Jesus Christ will take your sins away. It's a promise. God has declared and given assurance and announced what he shall do so that we may have the assurance of our faith that he will do what he has said. That's a promise. Please turn over to Acts chapter 7, verse 11. Page 1101. We'll look at Stephen's sermon also this evening, God willing. But here, let's look at verse 17. But the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now, this is referring to the period between when Joseph goes down and Jacob dies in Egypt and the period of Moses and the Exodus. There was a time drawing near, God had said 400 years, they would serve in Egypt. And then as the promise drew near, what was the promise? I will do something. That nation that they serve, I will judge. I will bring them out of bondage and I will give them this land that I have promised to you. That's what he's saying. The time of the promise drew nigh. God swore to Abraham that in that land they would only serve 400 years. That they would be enriched and that they would receive the new land, the promised land. Please turn over to chapter 13 of the book of Acts, page 1111. Acts 13, verse 23, the apostle Paul preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. Verse 23. Of this man's seed, that is of the seed of David, of this man's seed 
hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Okay, God did not merely promise an exodus and a physical land. He also promised that he would raise up of the seed of David a Messiah, a Savior, an anointed one, a prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise made to Israel. Look down there at verse 32, the same page. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which God was, which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. God promised, and what is the other part of the promise? The fulfillment, the doing, the putting into execution of the thing that God promised. This is glad tidings. This is good news. That God who made promise fulfilled promise. Exactly the same promise that he made, he says in verse 33. God of promise. Please turn over to Acts 26. The book of Acts says much of the promises of God. Acts 26, page 1128 of your pew Bibles. Starting at verse 6. And now I stand, this is the Apostle Paul accused by the Jews, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? What is the promise that the fathers received? That the twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night in the temple, what is the promise that they hope to have realized? The resurrection of the dead. God raised his son Jesus in fulfillment of that promise. And by raising his son Jesus, everyone united to Jesus by faith will be raised from the dead at the last day. That's the promise he's talking about. That is a promise God made to Israel. Please turn to Romans chapter 4, page 1136. 1136, Romans 4, we'll read verses 13 through 20, uh, 21 several instances of this word promise starting at verse 13 for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if they which are of the law be heirs faith is made void and the promise made of none effect just to point out how this connects with what we talked about on the covenants a promise declares to us what God has said he will do. An oath is where God solemnizes that promise and makes a promise upon the promise called an oath. The testament is where God says, I appoint the heirs. You see the relation? I make the promise, I swear to keep it, 
then I have a document called a testament where I appoint heirs and I say, here are the conditions of their salvation by which they will receive what? Here's their inheritance, here are the heirs, here's how it comes to you. But notice here, if the inheritance comes by legal obedience, by doing commandments, what happens to the promise? Do you see what happens? It becomes of none effect. If God says he will do it, then you say, no, but I have to do it. Who's right? God in his promise or you in the law? Who, who gets to make you an heir of God's testament? Master, what good thing shall I do? The rich young ruler asked Jesus, that I may inherit eternal life. Well, you know the commandments, he said. Keep the commandments. If you keep all the commandments, you shall be saved by works. Can you keep the commandments? Did he keep the commandments? No, he didn't. You know who kept the commandments? Jesus. You know who else? Nobody. If the inheritance comes by means of law, then the promise is meaningless. It's pointless. It's of none effect. Why, Paul? Verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. You see, if you transgress, then there's wrath. If there's no law, you can't walk over a boundary that doesn't exist. There's no transgression without law. Law, therefore, works wrath. Why? Because men transgress the law. The law worketh wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. You see this? It must be this way. Admit one ounce of work and a million pounds of grace and what do you have? The promise is of none effect. It's either all or it's nothing. It's either all what God has promised and accomplished so that we might have our sins forgiven or it is nothing because the law worketh wrath. Go on that just a little bit and you are doomed, you are damned, you are helpless, you are hopeless. Justified by grace. Through the righteousness of faith. Therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace to the end that the promise might be sure. If it's by works, is the promise sure? Is the promise confirmed? Do you know that God will actually do it? No, because now it depends on you, the sinful creature. You put your works in there. Will you fulfill your end? Will you keep the covenant as they say? No, you won't. That's why it's of promise. That's why it's by grace. That's why it's by faith. All you do is believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven. This is the promissory nature of God's gracious salvation. Please turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1164. Concerning the promises of God, verse 18. A promise is as good as the promisor. The one who makes the promise can break the promise unless they are incapable of breaking promises. 2 Corinthians 1, 
verse 18. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now, the measure of the reliability of the gospel promise is, is God true? You see that? As God is true, so the preaching we give you is not yea and nay. Maybe, maybe not. All the promises of God, any good that he has declared and said and published, I will do this good, it is yea, it is a man in Christ, God who cannot lie, swore by himself, sent his son who is absolutely faithful, and therefore the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ to the glory of God who made the promise. Turn over to chapter 6 of the same book, if you would. And again, the promise, as we saw with the idea of covenant and testament, the promise of God and the precept of God go hand in hand in Scripture, but we must properly distinguish as the Word of God does. Look there at verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Now notice, as God hath said... I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What do we call those things? Promises. God has declared what he shall do so that we may have an assurance of how God will behave. What shall he do? What will his conduct be toward us? I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now notice, what's the connection between the promise and the precept? Verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see the connection? Promises, precepts. How do they relate? As hand in glove. They work together in God's economy. We have these promises Therefore, exhortation, let us cleanse ourselves. Do not defile your spirit with errors and lies. 
Do not defile your body with idolatry and fornication. Do not defile your minds with unclean imaginations and thoughts, with malice and wickedness in your heart against your neighbor. Do not defile your body. Do not defile your spirit. Why? Because of God's promises. Because he said he would walk among us, that he would be our father, that we would be his sons and his daughters, that he would walk among us and dwell in us. And therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Please turn over to Galatians chapter 3. The promise of God. Notice the promises made to the fathers. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Here's Paul's reasoning. God made promise to Abraham then he published the law on Mount Sinai 430 years later. Can the law of God, given by God on Mount Sinai, nullify or push aside the arrangement God made with, Mo with Abraham? It can't. It cannot annul it. God already entered into the testament. He already swore with an oath. He already made the promise it will be fulfilled. Verse 18. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Notice here, the promise of God ordained until Christ should come to whom the promises were made. Here note, God promises he would do a thing, that he would be God to Abraham, that he would send his son, that he would raise him from the dead, and that through him remission of sins would be preached among all nations. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, page 1180 of your pew Bibles. Ephesians 2.11 Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Notice, God made covenants of promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to Hezekiah. All the promises and covenants of God are joined together as one set of covenants for whom? 
For the Jews, for them alone? No, for us, he says, who once were afar off, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers and foreigners. God says, no, you are now part of my household. I've adopted you into my household. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Through his death upon the cross, we are united to God and possess all of these promises. We see the same in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, concerning the promise of the fifth commandment. Hebrews 6, 12, 15 through 19. Hebrews 7, 6. Hebrews 8, 6. And let's look at Hebrews 9, just for a summation of these promises that God made in the Old Testament and to his people now. Hebrews 9, verse 14 talking of the sprinkling of ashes of a heifer, the sanctifying and purifying of the flesh. Now verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Here, notice, promise. God says, you shall receive an inheritance. Through the death of the mediator, even Christ, I will redeem not merely my New Testament saints, but all the saints from the beginning of the world, all those fathers under the law, they shall receive eternal inheritance, though they were under a different testament, a different arrangement, a different document. Yet, he says, this salvation applies to them as well. I note then this doctrine. God keeps his promises. Very simple. God keeps his promises. God promised eternal inheritance rather than eternal destruction. God promised the land of promise. To those who honor their father and mother, he promises that they will live long and enjoy good in their lives. God promised to pour out his spirit upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. All of these and more promises, we could go through one by one, God has fulfilled them all. He promised to raise up his son Jesus to Israel. He promised to send forth his spirit. He promised to call the Gentiles. He has promised that all of our enemies will be made the footstool of Christ, that we shall be raised from the dead at the last day. Will God fulfill his promise? Yes. God keeps his promises. In exhortation then, believe God's announcements, receive his assurances, rely upon his declaration. Does God have power to fulfill his word? Yes. Strong is the Lord God that judgeth her, we read. Has he promised to destroy the whore Babylon? Yes. Will he do it? Yes. Will it happen immediately, one day? Yes. God has power to fulfill. He has wisdom to reveal to us what his promises are. 
And therefore, with his wisdom to reveal and his power to accomplish, what are we waiting for? Let us rely upon his promises. He has spoken. In time past, as we read in Hebrews 1, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Can we then know his will? Yes, we can. Can we know his promises? Yes, we can. Another doctrine. The privilege of Israel after the flesh and our greater privilege as Israel after the Spirit is that God has made sure words of promise to us. God has given a privilege both to the Jews in the Old Testament and to Christians in the New that we have been recipients of promises made by God himself. These words are not like air that vanishes. If you trust in men, if you trust in boys or girls or parents or pastors or deacons or elders or presidents or senators, if you trust in sheriffs, if you trust in businessmen, if you trust in any created thing, can they fulfill everything that they promise to you? No, they can't. They just can't, and they won't. And you'll find that out the hard way if you rely upon people and think that in some way they can fulfill all your hopes and dreams. You will be very disappointed. Humans make pitiful gods, all of us do. Why? Because we can't do what we promise in every instance. We cannot fulfill with our hands what we promise with our mouths. Should we strive to do so? Yes. Should people be penalized when they do not fulfill their promises? Yes. Should some people be punished extremely severely, even with death by the magistrate, when they break certain promises? Yes. But can you rely on creatures to keep every single promise they make to you? No, you can't. Can you trust in God to fulfill the promises that he has made? Yes. This is why it is futile to trust in man, as the scriptures say, whose breath is in his nostrils. That's what Isaiah says. You think God could take that breath away? Yes. And all their promises, what happens at that point? Gone. Die with them. We must not trust in creatures. God has said, trust in me. Here are my promises. Rely upon these promises. This is what we call faith. Believe in my promises. We are heirs of a better inheritance. This testament is established upon better promises, a better mediator, a more sure word. God promised them a land of promise. You remember this from Stephen's sermon. Their promise was going to be fulfilled. The land was promised to them. Did God fulfill it? Yes, he did. What does God say we shall inherit? He says we shall inherit his heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever. When they went into the land, was the land heaven? Was it ideal? Were there problems? Was there sorrow? Was there misery? Was there death? Could their adversaries push them out of the land? Yes. Could their adversaries attack their land? Yes. Is there anyone who can attack God on his throne in heaven? No. 
Can his kingdom be taken away from him? No. Can his walls be breached? No. Therefore, when God promises a heavenly kingdom to us, we must rely upon that promise and recognize everything in this life is vanity. It's futile. It cannot fulfill the promise that it makes. Let us also, on the other end, be very cautious in the promises that we make, lest we break our word, lest we be such as lead men to rely upon us as if we were a god, miserable gods that we are. Let us believe these great and precious promises of the gospel, that God would send forth his son of the seed of David, born of a virgin, suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified, died, and be buried, be raised again the third day, ascend up in heaven, be seated at God's right hand, his kingdom having no end. These are the promises of Almighty God. I know this third doctrine. Our salvation is the work of God. It is solely by his grace that we are saved. Our salvation is the work of God. It is solely by his grace that we are saved. It is his word of promise, not our word of promise to him that saves us. His word of promise to us. Let us then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth on him, here's a promise, listen very carefully. Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He has passed from death to life already who believes in the Son. Are you a wicked sinner? God has a righteous Savior. Are you dead in trespasses and sins? There is a Savior who makes us alive together with Christ by grace are ye saved. Thus far the exposition of the promises of God made both to Israel and to us. Let's pray.